The text for the sermon this day is taken from the gospel reading, which you heard a little bit ago. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to start here at verse 24, and it says, Now Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So this is right, this is the day after, so this text begins the night of the resurrection. So Jesus has risen from the dead, the tomb was empty, and it had been reported to them by Mary Magdalene that she had seen him risen. And also if you include the Gospel of Luke, he was also seen on the road to Emmaus. And so he's appeared, and so this is that night. But Thomas was not there. Why Thomas was not there, we don't know. That's, kind of, that's just left up to speculation. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, sometimes Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. But in reality, that is not accurate. The word to doubt means to have faith. To doubt means that you have one foot in faith with the other foot teetering and beginning to fall off of faith. Thomas does not have faith. He says it, I will never believe. And the Greek construction that's used there, it's the no way Jose Greek. No way, never, ever will he believe. He has no faith. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So he has to start with this greeting because, for two reasons. First off, they're going to be freaked out. In fact, it's probably more freaky the first time, so the second time, maybe they're a little ready for it. But I mean, just think about this. You're in a locked room, and you're sitting there, you're talking about whatever, what's going on, and all of a sudden, someone shows up right in the middle of the room. And by the way, in the, for the, in the case of Thomas, Thomas believes Jesus is dead. So the dead man, the man that, Jesus, that Thomas thinks is dead, just showed up in the middle of the room. What do you think you're looking at? A ghost. And so you could imagine they would be freaking out. They would be panicking. I used to, I joked to one of my college roommates, like, did you know there's a, there's an extra additional like director's commentary where it says that a couple of them, you know, had to change their loins afterwards. I mean, let's face it, you probably wet yourself as soon as you if that happened to you. So that's the first part, to calm their minds. But the other thing is to forgive. And this is the primary purpose. Peace be with you. you hear, you'll hear those very words just before the Lord's Supper. 
The peace of the Lord be with you always. It's carrying this same sentiment. It is forgiveness to these people who have not believed. They have shown a lack of faith over the recent days and weeks. So he is telling them, and especially to Thomas, because Thomas has had the witness of his fellow disciples, he's had the witness of the women, and he has not believed. And so Jesus speaks forgiveness. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, it would be more accurate to call Thomas unbelieving Thomas or disbelieving Thomas. But the reality is, is that he is very similar to so, so many people. So, so many have doubt or complete unbelief when it comes to Christ. For some, it's an intellectual argument. They cannot, they cannot accept the idea that there is one true God. They cannot accept the idea that a man rose from the dead. So what do we have for evidence? Now, you know, you could not give 100% proof, at least until Jesus returns. But you could definitely provide evidence. You begin with even the scriptures themselves. As it says right here, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you happen to have a copy of the Bible, how many books do you have? You don't have one. Yep, you have 66 books. Your, your Bible is a library. And in the case of the New Testament, you have 27 books. You have 27 historic documents attesting to Jesus. And very much confessing who Jesus is. Which, by the way, no one of antiquity, of the ancient world, has that kind of record. And if that is not enough, you also have the writings of the church fathers. You have a number of Christians who have writings out that are outside of the New Testament that date up to a hundred years after the crucifixion. All confessing to him. And you can even add to it the non-believers, the unbelievers. You have sources such as Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time period. You have writings of Suetonius, Tacitus. These are names that probably don't mean much to you, but they are people the same time period talking about that Jesus did in fact exist. So we're talking about that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. We are not talking about a matter of opinion. 
We are not talking about something, well, that's just how I live. That's just how I believe. No, it is either Christianity, because it is a historic faith, it is either true or false. There is no in-between. And if it's true, it's the only truth. The evidence has it. So if you look at the resurrection, so if you went back to the beginning of John chapter 20, who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Mary Magdalene, the women. All four Gospels record that the first ones to see Jesus risen from the dead was the women. In fact, if you're to go to the Gospel of Mark, women are the only witnesses to the resurrection. And why this is of significance is because in the first century, women were considered to not have any credibility. It's not fair, but that's how they perceived it. it was, women's credibility was considered so low that if there was a murder and the only witness was a woman, they would say nobody saw it. That's how it was in the first century. And why that is of significance is because if you were to make up a story, make up something that happened, you wouldn't, in the first century, you would not pick women as your first witnesses. It'd be the biggest mistake you could have to come up with a lie in the first century. The only way to make sense of picking women as the first witnesses in the first century is because they were the first witnesses. The disciples, they all confessed. Not, they didn't just confess that Jesus rose from the dead. They confessed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead which is very different. Because you're, if anybody knows that Jesus did not rise from the dead, it would be the disciples. And while it may be that you might get one person that's really, really crazy, really kind of loco or whatever, who is willing to suffer excruciating pain for something they know to be a lie, what's the chances that you could get 12 people to do that? or even more, to the 500 people that Jesus showed himself risen from the dead to. Last week in the epistle lesson, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states a creed, and he talks about how Jesus showed himself to Cephas, to the twelve, and to as one untimely born, he showed himself to Paul. He also mentions that he shows himself to 500 people, most of whom were still alive at the time of when Paul was writing this. The creed that Paul is writing about is a creed that even non-Christian scholars have admitted dates within 100 years, or not, sorry, within one year of the crucifixion. One year after the crucifixion, we have historical documentation that people were saying Jesus was risen from the dead. And you know what they got for it? You know what their reward was? They didn't get a million dollar check. They didn't get a fancy home. 
fact, did you hear it in the epistle, in the reading from Acts? What happened to them? They're beaten up and thrown out into the street. And they didn't stop there. Eventually, starting with Stephen, it led to death. The reward for confessing that they saw Jesus risen from the dead was their own execution. And sometimes in very excruciating fashions. And the only way to make sense of them suffering what they suffered, for confessing that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, the only way to make sense of that is that yes, indeed, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, here's a question. Seemingly in our culture, C.S. Lewis once said that if Christianity is true, sorry, if Christianity is false, it is of no value at all. Christianity, if true, is of absolute importance. One thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. Last week, we said it. Alleluia, Christ is risen, to which we respond. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. That is the truth that we confess. But the thing is, is when we talk about the event of the crucifixion, we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, we are not just talking about a nice little factoid like who has the most home runs in the history of baseball. You know, we're not just telling, talking about a historical detail. Because the reality is, is that every single one of us is born into sin. Every single one of you is born dead. Every single one of you is born into a world that is filled with trial and tribulation. You are all born into a world where we're surrounded by people who are sick, people who are dying, and do in fact die. We live in a world where families are fall apart, where marriages are broken. We live in a world where best friends become enemies. We live in a world where we find ourselves saying things that we cannot believe we ever said and hurting people that we love dearly. We live in a world where we are filled with sin and we're surrounded by its consequences. Oh, who can save us from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus, who conquered death in the grave, because by his rising from the dead, he guaranteed, he made the seal that this world that we live in, this world filled with the effects of sin, will come to an end. And you will rise to a day where none of it will ever be again. Where your body will be as it was meant to be. Where death will not be. Where you won't have pain or sorrow or grief. You'll never be hungry or thirsty. And there is no salvation outside of Jesus. That's why the disciples were willing to die. Because if you could believe something else, why die? 
Why wouldn't they just say, oh, you know what, if you just believe whatever makes you happy. They could have said that. That's the mantra of our culture. In fact, this past, sun, this past Thursday, Wednesday, I took our seventh graders to Mission Central. We've done that every single year for the last, for now seven years in a row. And so one of the things that, came, that was told them, to them, for one, they learned what a missionary is. And hopefully they got to some degree the idea, understanding that they are missionaries. You are missionaries. Your mission field is all around you. Because those seventh graders are going, when they get to college, if they are still a Christian, they will be a minority. In fact, on college campuses, they will be an extreme minority. Less than 10% of college campuses are Christian. The United States of America, by the time they're in college, the entire country will be 30% Christian. See the mission field that we are surrounded? See how urgent the message you have of Christ risen from the dead is? But how are people to believe unless they hear? How are they to believe unless we tell them? There's no more important message in this entire world than that gospel. And I know for some of us the reason we doubt. I think Thomas, when he was the way he was, a lot of it was grief. The, word, the, the Greek language that's used there is actually very intense. It's a word of a man who is in great, ang great anguish. Many of us know that the effects of the world, of how it beats us down. And so we wonder, God, how can you love us when you give us so many bad things? And you know what he says? He just says, look at my hands. Look at the side. Look at the feet. Jesus suffered excruciating pains. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was rejected. He was humiliated. People were constantly trying to kill him. And eventually they killed him by crucifixion. He was convicted by his own religious leaders. He was convicted by his own government. You have a God who is... A, that knows what it's like to suffer in this world. But he also knows that his suffering and death brought salvation to you and to the entire world. And he knows better than anyone that though you may suffer in this world, it is but temporary. It will not last. The glory that he has in store for you is beyond anything you can imagine. As it says, God works for the good of all those whom he has chosen. And just as it was for Jesus, you may have to die to get to that glory. But those who he has called, you will still go to that glory. And it will make everything that you went through seem like nothing.
compared to the glory that is in him. Those wounds testify to this. And so, when, I was at, when we were at Mission Central, and this is something I've been ta talking many times with our youth, our confirmands, there's a joke amongst Lutherans. There's a story once. There's a church that's dealing with problems with bats in their church. And they're trying to figure out how to get rid of the bats. And so one gentleman said, why don't we just confirm them? A joke that simultaneously is funny and sad. Funny because it's reality, but it's sad that it is the reality. That for so many, they get confirmed, and then we might see them at graduate recognition, then we'll see them when they get married, then when their kids are baptized, and then when their kids are going through confirmation. That's all we'll see of them. Why do we go to worship? Why is it that God commands it? None of this idea that, well, God doesn't care. He just wants us to love him. If you love him, you keep his word. He commands that you attend worship. But why does he command it? One for your own sake. Remember, I just... Raise your hand if you think this life is always easy. Raise your hand if you've never had a bad day. <laughs> Guessing none of you really have gone without bad days. Maybe. Or bad moments. We live in a world filled with the curse. God gives us his word. He gives us his body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine for the forgiveness of sins to strengthen you and carry you through this world. Do you know what the other re another reason he tells you to come? It's not just for you, but for one another. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. Just by your mere presence, you can strengthen and encourage another person. Third reason, as I just mentioned, we have a growing mission field beyond these walls. You come to be strengthened, to hear and receive his word. And it goes beyond even what happens here. It goes into reading your Bible. Find a good podcast to learn your faith. Issues, etc. is a great resource if you want, you're looking for one. There's places you can look and strengthen and acknowledge your faith so that you are ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. We come here for yourself, for your fellow Christian, and for the whole world. Many are like Thomas, doubting, unbelieving. But he continues to give you the word. And the word is written and given to you and you hear it. And as you hear it, you are led to believe and you are led to continue believing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, who has risen from the dead and that by believing, you may have life in his name 
And to that we can say, without doubt, Alleluia! Christ is risen! He is risen.